Index investing or passive investing has grown more popular with investors. Even Warren Buffett has the benefits of owning an entire index like the S&P 500 over the long term. An example of an index tracking ETF is BMO's S&P 500 Index ETF. It's the largest ETF in Canada that tracks this well-recognized and popular index. It provides exposure to the returns of the market cap weighted S&P 500 Index at a low cost the management fee of just 0.08%. This broad market ETF makes for an efficient building block in a portfolio, saving you time and effort while mitigating single stock risk. If you're looking for exposure to the largest and most liquid public companies in the United States, this ETF delivers an easy-to-use solution and instant diversification. Commissions and management fees and expenses all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 118. As always, joined by the three amigos, Skeet Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, Rich Diaz, PGM Global. What's going on, gentlemen? Boomer? Hey, man, guys, we're week two, right? For the new year, 2024. We're up. I know. I'm trying out all my new t-shirts. I still haven't cycled through them all yet, but I'm getting uh, closer. Are How about you, you old, Rich? Are you the old Navy guy? I can't remember. Yeah. 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 Old Navy. Yeah, that's, with, that's, some, with, that's some dad vibes. But with prints on them, you know, this is my this is a New York themed one, Steve. Oh, so I know you like an all solid one. Sometimes to wear two days in a row, you can just wear it backwards. Then the back do you rock is, that when you go to New York? Oh my god, <laughs> I'm so embarrassed for both of you. <laughs> I know. Next question, Rich. Rich. What's up, man? What's going on in the evenings with you these days? Um, not much. Back at the gym. I'm working from home today, which is why I look like uh, a little bit disheveled. And if you see a small Portuguese lady walk through the podcast and start talking to me, even though I've told her very clearly that we're in the middle of something, well, you'll have to forgive me because uh, she will almost certainly interrupt us. Mama but, Diaz. Uh, no, all good. All good in the neighborhood. We got horrible yep. weather in Montreal, which is fun for me because I did not miss it. But otherwise, yeah, I'm ready to go, man. Lots of good stuff to talk about. Hey, you don't bring mess, her on. You don't mess with old Portuguese ladies. <laughs> bring her on? No, don't say Bring that. on, Mama D. Come on, Mama D. We want to see her. <laughs> oh, wait. Sorry. I know we have, we're pressed for time, but I have to say the story. So my mother listens to us every single week. And last week she was watch, she was, uh, she logged on to watch it on YouTube and she saw the Doomberg chicken and she thought there was something wrong with our podcast. <laughs> and so she had, so she like closed YouTube, searched for it again, clicked on it again, started watching and the chicken came back up again. And she literally thought <laughs> there was something wrong. That's hilarious. <laughs> we had, uh, we had some good good uh, feedback from that episode. Uh, but yeah, I, I had some feedback too. Or like, I had a couple of people call me after the show. And they're like, yeah, it was kind of weird watching this green chicken talk on the screen. But uh, man, that was an awesome podcast. It's funny. So here we are, like losing audience members, one listener at a time. Yeah, one listener at a time. But honestly, if I people told that story. haven't seen the green chicken, Doomberg, I uh, highly encourage you to like stop this episode. Go back, watch that one. That was, uh, I think, one of my favorite interviews to date. But uh, 
it's almost as odd as you know what what's odder the green chicken or seeing rich at home like this which one is yeah the green chicken yeah the green chicken <laughs> settle down there in new york um <laughs> anyways i you know we've got another another great guest here today a good friend of mine uh, jared dillian um for those of you that aren't familiar with jared uh he's you know pretty pretty active there on twitter um he's the author of a newsletter called the daily dirt nap which i personally subscribe to it's like a daily newsletter about markets and it's just really well written i mean this guy's a brilliant writer um he used to work at lehman brothers he was a former trader at lehman brothers for many many years um built up his newsletter list um and then eventually became a full-time newsletter writer uh but basically all all things markets he's written I don't know, four books now, Street Freak, All the Evil of This World, Those Bastards, which I just read. It was a hilarious book. And he's got a new book coming out called No Worries. It's, uh, I mean, I'll let him frame that book up, but it's supposed to be, he's he's really excited about it. I think it's going to be a great read. If if it's as good as any of his other books, I'm sure this one will be just as good. But um, Jared Dillian, looking forward to having him on. So we'll get to the interview right now. Jared, welcome to Looney Hour uh thanks thanks it's good to be on yes yeah, so you're it. over you're over in south carolina correct south carolina yep okay it is when... uh it is 54 degrees fahrenheit here today which is pretty average for uh uh south carolina in the winter so wow we got like a cold snap here in vancouver right now but uh <laughs> Yeah, hey, is, so, that, is that where the Canadian geese go? Do they go down your your way, or do they go somewhere else? Where do yeah, they go? They do. We see some Canadian geese here. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, so we've got uh, you know I, I've yeah followed obviously a lot of your work. How are you looking at markets right now? Uh, we just had CPI, for example, today come out um, a little bit hotter than expected, coming at three point four percent on the headline inflation expected at three point two. How are you looking at that? Um, What's your what's well, your take? I mean, what's you know the the data isn't as important as the reaction to the data, and you know what you're seeing in the bond market is you know the bond market's pretty flat since the release. It's actually up a little bit. Um, I think I think the thinking here is that the Fed has already committed to cutting rates three times, um, and that's going to happen really no matter what happens with inflation, unless inflation just rips higher, but. You know, the this this month's reading is a little bit of an anomaly. Um, I don't know how much attention you pay to the true inflation data, but it's a private real-time measure of inflation that continues to go down. Um, I personally think you'll see inflation, you know, CPI go towards two and a half percent this year. Um, core PCE is already at two percent. Um, you're gonna see the rate of inflation continue to come down. Uh, I have a large position in bonds. In two-year notes, it's a little smaller than it was a couple of weeks ago. But um, basically, when rates were five percent, I was betting. I was I was betting on rate cuts, um, and the thesis was that we would get a recession this year. And I'm actually less confident on the recession, but it kind of seems like the Fed is going to cut rates anyway. Um, so that's that's my thinking right now. Yeah, I think that's a good takeaway. I was actually looking at the. Um... The shelter component, Rich, you and I have kind of argued about this uh, for many, many months now. But um, there's uh, again, Jay Parsons is kind of my follow on that. Um, he's a U.S. housing economist, uh, but he he basically shows that um, U.S. shelter inflation, which is still the largest component to it, 
actually in his view lags by almost 12 months. So it he does. still has based on asking rents coming down. He's, he's still of the view that uh, that will eventually show up. And I can, I can tell you that in the U S the housing market is weakening and it's not, it hasn't shown up in the data yet. Um, but it's weakened pretty dramatically. Transactions are way, way down. Uh, there's nothing selling. Um, you know, inventories are still pretty low. There's not a lot of houses for sale. Um, you got your think, house for sale. Yeah, I got my house for that's part of the inventory. Yeah, you're supposed <laughs> to be, you're supposed to be pumping the bags right now. <laughs> but yeah, the housing market here looks a little dicey. Uh, even though mortgage rates have come down from eight to six and a half, um, it's still it, it, it hasn't really done a lot to stimulate the market. So, but like. Um, Oh, go sorry, ahead, go ahead. Rich. I mean, okay. I've got a got a question to follow up well, just, on that. But. Yeah, just to following up on. Oh, sorry, just going maybe step back onto the CPI. I mean, this uh, something I look at a lot is uh, services, and I gotten in the habit of looking services less shelter, excluding shelter, and that's really held up well. Obviously, because the labor market has done has surprised really to the upside. I mean, do you think do you see that continuing? I mean, we have more people unemployed than than jobs available. The jolt number has come down, but there are still pockets where it's doing really well, like in construction. Is that something that you that you pay a lot of attention to or, or is that maybe over overblown? Well, I don't know. I mean, but if you look at the last uh services PMI print, um it was it was pretty negative and also the employment number was really negative so i think you're starting to see some weakness in services for the first time in a while it's it's been sort of a delayed reaction but i think you're starting to see some weakness there so okay how do you look at this from like um like a sentiment perspective as well um i know you're like you're the sentiment guide so how, i mean how do you look at just positioning overall in the market today well, I think I think we might have put in a top in stocks today. Uh, we're getting an outside reversal. We opened on the highs. We're going to close on the lows. Um, I've uh, you know I've been short. I have a small short position that I've had for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, I base just looking at the technicals. I thought we were topping out. Um, sentiment is pretty bullish. It's not extremely bullish, but it's pretty bullish. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised to see. Uh, six to eight percent correction over the next couple of weeks at a minimum so is that where you get like excited to get back in after that like six six to eight and you're like you know what coast is kind of clear i don't know it kind of depends what's happening at the time so yeah um i mean yeah, a lot you're, of you're the, kind of prepared oh, to sort of position and and pivot as you see fit i mean you're just kind of uh a data and sentiment driven guy that you know well, you know, as a result of being a sentiment-driven guy, um, I'm not a trend follower, right? Like, I generally don't buy the upper right-hand corner of the chart. I sell the upper right-hand corner of the chart. So, um, it, you know, my style of trading is to pick extremes uh, on the highs and on the lows and catch uh, a 5 to 10% correction and then get out. And if you hit a bunch of singles like that over the course of the year, the returns add up and you do pretty well. So it's a different style of trading than what most people do. And one of the things that I found in my career is that there's a million different ways to make money. And a lot of people think that their way is the right way and it's the only way to make money. And if you're not doing it that way, then you're an idiot. 
Absolutely not true. Like there's people on Twitter who I see that I think are complete idiots and they're very profitable. They have a style that they use and it works for them and terrific. One of my favorite ones, Jared, just to give you a plug here, following your newsletter. Uh, and I don't follow all your trades, but there's some where I'm like, nah, that I like that one was the uh, buying like the very, like the bottom tick of on office REITs. Yeah. When sentiment was just like so bad. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that was, that was a good one. Right. I mean, that's just a classic, classic sentiment play, as you said, kind of the contrarian take when nobody wanted office rates, everyone thinks it's going to zero. Uh, you know, we, we were, we well, were buying that and, and, you know, it turned you know, out to be a pretty good trade. The amazing thing about that trade, there was so much noise about commercial real estate and you had these hedge funds that were shorting these office REITs with like 18% dividends. If you ever find yourself shorting a stock with an 18% dividend, you should get yourself checked into a mental hospital. Like <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's not a good idea. So the consensus was that commercial real estate was going to blow up. Uh, and I bought SL Green. I bought it at 20, sold it in the high 30s, made almost 100%. And guess what? Commercial real estate is still going to blow up. Like that will happen over time. Okay. But in the short term, the sentiment was so bearish and the positioning was so one-sided that it was it was just one of the greatest like trade setups of all time, you know. Yeah, I think that's an important asterisk there is like it's all about time horizons, right? It's not like you're like going long office reads indefinitely. It's like yeah. it's, it's it's a trade, you're in, you're out. Um, funny enough, looking at uh, US office. I saw there was a report put out there by, I think it was CBRE, that U.S. office vacancy rates hit an all-time record high um, just this it's last It's happening month. in Toronto, too. There was another, same. I think the same company, CBRE, mentioned that in Toronto, those uh, those vacancy rates are, are, are continuing to ratchet higher and higher. Do you, have a, do you have a view on that, Jared, in terms of moving forward, I guess, like the impact on all these cities, particularly in the U.S.? Um, you know, have we fundamentally shifted to this, you know, hybrid work model? And I guess the what is the future for not only office, but um, cities and tax revenues? I don't I don't know if I know the answer to that question. I don't think I know. Um, there's a part of me that says that um, there will be a reversion to the mean. And companies, look, there are clear benefits to having everyone in the firm in the office at the same time working together. There's synergy there, right? So there's been a loss of that synergy. And I think a lot of firms are going to want to reclaim that, what, you know, the where we were five years ago. Um, at the same time, you know, like you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Like people worked from home for two years during the pandemic. They got used to it. They liked it and they don't want to go back. So I think, I think the middle ground is probably where the truth is. You're going to have some hybrid of that. Uh, people working three, four days a week, that type of thing. Um, you know, and there are going to be some losses in, in the office REITs. Um, but it's not, I don't think it's going to be catastrophic. I don't. You've been, uh, let me, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, so Jared, let's talk. I mean, uh, I, I love the, perspective on sentiment and maybe you can share a little bit on what kind of data points you're using for sentiment, but also let's look a bit closer. You know, over the last three years, every single market we're looking at has had extremes. So we're looking at, you know, 2020, 21, and, and 22, 
23 as well. It's four years, right? <laughs> so, you know, with, with that, I mean, we've gone from zero to five and now five people, you know, the call from maybe up to 150 points and cuts in some markets here. What markets do you think might get totally blown out, which would then create that extreme sentiment opportunity for, from your perspective? It could be fixed income, equities, real estate, currencies. And then also, uh, I think we also need to talk about sentiment for Canada. You know, we, we are Canadian focused. I know you have a, you've recently sent out a few of your thoughts on Canada, which could be perceived as a sentiment uh, thought as well. There's a lot of stuff in there to... Uh, to keep rich away from asking a question. <laughs> well, you uh <laughs> um you kind of asked me like what data do I look at when I look at sentiment and I don't really look at data. Like I look at I look at language, right? I look at the types of words that people are using. If anyone ever says on Twitter that a stock is unstoppable or relentless, like that is a good time to lay out a short like when it's unstoppable, like that's the time when people start using words like that, or when people say the stock market will never go down, you, you start using absolutes like always and never and stuff like that. Like that's when you're usually at an extreme. So there are hedge funds that use sentiment in a quantity, they use quantitative methods in sentiment to invest. Um, and they scrape Twitter, they scrape the internet, they look at news articles and they have some computer that looks at this and they trade, you know, sort of high frequency with stocks, you know, and they make, they make decent returns, but really like, I think that sentiment is better measured by a human analyst measuring how emotionally charged some of these statements are. That's really where you get your best information. Um, so I, so you answered, you asked me like eight different questions, but I answered one of them. But. Jared, honestly, I could give you like some, some plug there. Like I said, I've been probably reading your, your, um, daily newsletter there for, I don't know, three, four years at least now. Oh, it's like six or seven. Yeah. See, you probably know better than me, just yeah. auto recurring billing there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, honestly, like I've used it a lot in my own career, uh, just on the real estate space, just trying to gauge, you know, market tops, uh, just look at sentiment. Just, and it's, again, you said you can like, I don't always look at the data. It's a lot of the times just like, how are people talking about the market? Wh what is the mood? And, uh, it, and it's really hard because people look at you and say, well, like what data are you using? And you're like, well, I'm not really using like a data. I'm just, you're just out there talking to people. You're, it's like a gut feel. Yeah. Um, and I think I've kind of, honestly, for myself personally, I think I've built that up over the years. And a lot of it's just through reading a lot of your work and how you kind of do it. So um, slow clap for you on that one. But so let's would you consider positioning? Oh, sorry. Would you consider positioning um, as far a part of your sentiment yeah, suite, sure. I would say? Yeah. And what kind of positioning I, I, stuff do you look at? Just for, our, for our maybe our less uh, sort of our less educated listeners, you could just describe a couple if you don't mind. Well, you know, in the, I trade a lot of futures. So in the futures world, I look at the commitment of traders data. I look at spec longs and shorts and hedgers longs and shorts and stuff like that. Um, and in stocks, you know, you look at short interest. You look uh, a lot of times if you're if you're looking at individual stocks, you look at the types of holders that a stock has. You can look into the list of holders and the 13 Fs, see what types of institutions hold the stocks like that's the type of stuff that I look at. So, OK, cool. Thanks. We can go to Canada now. I'm curious about your views there. Well, there was a really interesting tweet. I'm sure you guys saw it that went around uh, a couple of days ago 
about how the U.S. has grown 47% in the last um, 10 years and Canada has grown 4%. Um, I don't I don't know where you guys' political leanings are or anything like that. Like maybe you're liberals, maybe you're conservatives. It doesn't matter. Trudeau is, you know, somebody, I was actually on the radio today. Every Thursday morning, I go into the radio and we were talking about the 2024 election and we were talking about the possibility that the Democrats run the table and we have a Democratic president and Congress and how taxes would probably go up a lot and a lot of things would happen. And they said, what would that do to the United States? And I said, well, it would look a lot like Canada. Like it, it, it would it, like basically we wouldn't grow like we would stop growing. Um, you know, it's it's not that we become a second world country overnight or everything goes to hell, but you know, growth is necessary for survival. And, you know, per capita GDP in the United States is close to 60,000. And in Canada, it's just under 40,000. Like there's clear differences in growth between the two countries. And a lot of it is because of the policies of the last seven years, the, the income tax rates and carbon taxes and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's basically where we are. And I don't, I don't think any, I don't think there's going to be a lot of change in Canada until you have political change, you know? Um, so you guys are much more plugged in than I am. So do you have, um, well, yeah, to that point, you and I originally got connected, uh, over Canadian housing. Um, yep. and so, yeah, I think I went on your podcast years ago. I think like you were, you had to get out a short position, uh, on some of the Canadian banks. Um, kind of curious, you know, if you can walk us through that story and how it kind of played out. And, and I don't know if you have an updated view on that today, um, given everything that's going on in the world, but just kind of curious your thoughts there. Well, the interesting thing about the Canadian housing trade is that thesis, I, I have never been more wrong on a thesis than I was with that thesis. I was dead wrong, but I made more money in that trade than any trade I have ever done. I was dead wrong and I killed it. I, I just, I crushed it. So basically I had three parts of the trade. I was short the Canadian dollar. I was short Canadian interest rates. I was long backs futures. And what year is this? Uh, all the way from, well, I'll tell you in a second. I'll tell you in a okay. second. Uh, and I was short the Canadian banks. Okay. So I shorted the Canadian dollar in 2013. It went to 146 and uh, I closed out the trade. I didn't close it out at 146, but I came close and, you know, made a lot of money off it. Uh, the backs futures I held until the pandemic rates went to zero during the pandemic. So I ended up making a lot of money on that. Um, the Canadian banks, I had a really good entry point. I forget what year it was probably 2013. I was short the banks for like seven years. I basically was unch when I closed out the trade but I had paid like $280,000 in dividends, right? So I was like, so I basically, I had like no capital losses, but I had paid out a bunch of dividends. But if you add those three legs of the trade together, it was my greatest trade of all time, you know, which shows that you can be right for the wrong reasons. You could be wrong for the right reasons and still make money. So, I mean, to, to give you uh, a bit of credit, I mean, the Canadian housing trade, has continued to surprise many, many people uh, just seemingly against all odds continues to move up and to the right. Um, of course, right now it's going through its challenges and uh, I'm kind of curious if you've considered revisiting that trade. 
No, I'm not. And basically what I figured out with Canadian housing and people were telling me, people were telling me this for the last 10 years, they're like, you're a fool to short Canadian housing because you're basically letting in 2% of the country every year. It's because of this immigration and it's putting pressure on housing prices. And I was like, yeah, 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 that doesn't matter. Well, it absolutely does matter. It's going to matter in the United States. We've let 8 million people into the United States through the Southern border over the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to have enormous upward pressure on housing prices because of that. It's going to start on the low end, but it's going to, instead of trickling down, it's going to trickle up. So I think immigration has really been probably the number one factor in Canadian housing prices. There's other factors too, but uh, I've got no interest in revisiting that short at all. So I think there was like another terminology that you had used once and i thought it was pretty accurate which is like you know the the s p 500 for example in the u.s is almost uh, a political asset at this point and oh, i would yeah. say i would say in canada it's like housing it's like it's a it's a religion housing is a religion and it is ultimately dictated and supported by five large banks that run the country and 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 the governments that uh, ultimately are elected I mean, um, conversely, stocks are religion in the U.S., right? The government in the United States cannot allow the stock market to fail. It can go down 10%, it can go down 20%, but if it goes down 50%, the entire like fabric of the country just comes apart, right? Because in the United States, people save for their retirement in the stock market. We're the only country that does this. Europe doesn't do it. Japan doesn't do it. This is our retirement savings. So the stock market cannot be allowed to fail. In Canada, it's housing. In, in Canada, housing cannot be allowed to fail. They cannot let it fail. So Yeah. I mean, I've said this before, but you know, nobody gets excited about the TSX here in Canada. Um, <laughs> you know, everyone gets excited about pre-sale condos and, uh, you know, rides those into the stratosphere, but. Jared, so that's, that's... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Keith. Sorry. Yeah. Jump ahead ahead of Rich again. So go, again, go, go. like with the, yeah, let's stay in Canada for a little bit here in, in the housing market. You know, Steve mentions a bit, a bit, a bit of softish now for a while. You know, is, is this kind of maybe the opportunity to, to go in to get aggressive with housing again? Um, or is it still, you know, sentiment hasn't been washed out at all? You know, what, do you see anything on that side with Canada? In Canada or just in general? Oh, in Canada with housing? Um, I mean, you know, Canada and U.S. are kind of similar right now because prices of high and the cost of carry is high, right? And also, I don't know about Canada, but the insurance market is all screwed up in the U.S., so insurance is high here too. So it's very expensive to own a house. It's much cheaper to rent. Um, and I tell people this all the time. Like, there's if you look at charts in the U.S. of affordability, like affordability is at all-time lows because of housing prices and because of interest rates. Like, even though prices in Canada have come down a little bit, like real estate is still very unaffordable. Now, that's probably not going to change unless you dump 2 million houses on the market, unless you just create a lot of supply. But it's like, I don't think there's, I don't really, I don't really see a lot of upside. I don't see a lot of downside, but it's still the, the affordability is the big problem. Thank you. Um, my question, my question was um, to do with 
Um, you, you mentioned that in the U.S., you know, the stock market cannot be allowed to fail. And Canada, it's housing. But do you, would you reckon that that's one of the reasons why the U.S. has been able to maintain to some such better productivity growth? That you've got capital allocated to companies that ostensibly produce productive assets um, and um, productive assets that they try to return money to shareholders that they invest in R and D. I mean, R and D spending in the U.S. is almost twice what it is relative to in Canada relative to GDP. Whereas in Canada, our money and our GDP is plowed into what is ultimately not that productive an asset. That is uh, a very elegant way of putting that. I wouldn't have been able to come up, come up with that myself. That's okay. actually genius. Yes. Oh, well. the, answer, the answer to all that is yes. Like A blind sure. squirrel finds a nut every now and again, <laughs> I guess. What else is uh, keeping you up at night, Jared, as we move forward here? Like, I know that... <laughs> You know, up until recently, you were really concerned about inflation. Uh, I think you had an inflation trade on. Uh, I believe you still have it on. Um, so I'm kind of curious, you know, you've kind of talked earlier in the show about inflation subsiding. You know, you see CPI getting close to maybe 2.5% at some point this year. Um, what are your concerns moving forward? Are you worried about maybe a reacceleration? How are you looking at that? Yeah, you know, so I'm the psychology guy. So, you know, inflation, the, the rate of inflation has come down a lot. Um, let's just say inflation is two and a half percent. We still have a, an inflationary psychology. Like people still believe that prices are going higher. Um, and basically the reason that is, is, you know, people have a memory and they say, okay, in 2018, when I went to the grocery store, it cost 150 bucks. Now, when I go, it costs 300 bucks. Ergo, we have inflation. And that's important because if people believe we have inflation, they act, they behave in such a way that actually perpetuates inflation. So if you think the price of eggs are going up, you're going to go to the grocery store and you're going to buy like 12 dozen eggs. Because you think that the next time you go to the grocery store, the price is going to be even higher. So you accelerate your consumption, which speeds up the economy and the economy runs faster. Okay. So we, we still have this inflationary psychology and until we break it, we, there is the chance that we're going to have another round of inflation that could be potentially worse than the last. So there could be a lot of catalysts for this, right? Like, let's say Trump gets elected, and in 2025, he does a stimulus package, right? Well, inflation is going to be 10% in a heartbeat, for sure. Th these are the types of things that could happen. I think inflation is coming down right now, but in 25 or 26, it could be much higher. How are you looking at the uh, U.S. election as well? Just, uh, you know, it's obviously coming up here. Do you have any have any views on that? Potential outcomes? Well, what a lot of people are, I think, kind of focused on the wrong things. Um, like people are focused on, you know, Biden's age and his fitness for election and Trump's authoritarian tendencies. And they're kind of missing the point. The, the election is really going to come down to third party candidates. Okay. So on, on one side, you have Robert F. Kennedy, who is running as um, an independent. And you also have the no labels people. I don't know if you've heard of them, but there's a group called no labels that intends to run a centrist candidate like Joe Manchin or Larry Hogan or something like that. 
And they said, if Trump is the nominee, they're actually going to do this. So you're going to have a centrist candidate like Larry Hogan, who's going to peel off 5% of the votes. And Robert F. Kennedy is going to peel off 5% of the votes. And the question is, who do they steal more votes from? And the thinking is, is that RFK Jr. will take away more votes from Trump and a no labels candidate will take away more votes from Biden. Um, but there's just like to make a prediction 300 days out is just foolish. Like there's too many variables. You can't predict what's going to happen. But I really honestly believe it's going to come down to the third party candidates that that turn the election one way or another. Yeah, no, I think that's uh It'll be an interesting year. I know everyone up here in Canada is always uh, paying close attention to the U.S. elections as well and, and the outcome there. So, um, But I also wanted to talk about your upcoming book here called um, No Worries. Um, can you can you walk us through that? I know you're pretty excited about it. Um, you know, I plugged a few of your books here earlier, but uh, I think you're uh, there. There it is. No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. So this book is... Uh, you know who Dave Ramsey is, right? Yeah. No, no, I don't. You Sorry. know who Dave Ramsey is? No. Yeah, you do. Come on. Are you joking? Do I? I don't know. I wouldn't what? lie. Do you know who I'm... Susie Orman is? Yeah. Okay. So these and Robert Kiyosaki, do you know who that is? Yeah. That, I, okay. That I know. So these, these are like the three main figures in personal finance in the United States. And they're all ding-dongs. Like they're all just complete <laughs> idiots. Like, like Susie Orman says... If you just don't buy coffee, then you will be a millionaire at retirement. And Dave Ramsey says, if you cut up all your credit cards and just use cash and go off the grid, then you'll be fine. And Kiyosaki says, you should buy a bunch of residential real estate and laundromats and RV parks and do the passive income thing and you'll be a millionaire. These are all terrible ideas. They're all terrible ideas. And the reason is, is because... They increase your stress when it comes to money. They increase your financial stress. The two sources of stress are debt and risk. If you have a lot of debt, you're going to be in a lot of stress. If you have a lot of risk, you're going to be in a lot of stress. So this book is about minimizing your financial stress. And if you've ever seen the movie Inception, you know, that that quote where it's like the an idea is like a virus. Like once you see this, you can't unsee it. You will see it wherever you go. So it's a powerful idea. And there's uh can you talk about the portfolio that I believe you call it the awesome portfolio? Um, can you just quickly explain what that is? Yeah. So the awesome portfolio is 20% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% cash, 20% gold, and 20% real estate. You know, most people have uh 60-40 portfolio and 80-20 portfolio, or they have all stocks. Um, let me put it this way. The prevailing wisdom in the United States is you want to put all your money in the S&P 500 and dollar cost average it. Put it all in and dollar cost average it. Great. The S&P 500 returns a lot. It returns like nine and a half percent a year. Okay. The returns are great. But if you invest in an index, you get the returns of the index, but you also get the volatility of the index. And the S&P 500 is a very volatile index. It moves about 1% a day. It moves about 16 to 20% a year. You have had four drawdowns of 50% or more. You had a drawdown of 25% last year. Risk and drawdowns affect your psychology, okay? 
it's very hard to stay invested over a 40 or 50 year investing career when you're taking 50% drawdowns and experiencing this volatility. And what they tell you is just hang on, just keep putting money in, just hang on, but you can't do it. And even if you could do it, is that desirable? Like, do you really want to be miserable like three or four times in your life when the market goes down 30% and you're freaking out and you're shitting your pants? Like, why would you put yourself through that? The awesome portfolio returns 8.1% a year with a max drawdown of 12%, 12%. And it has half the volatility of an 80-20 portfolio. So you give up 1% returns and you have half the risk. It is magic beans. It is the closest thing to a silver bullet in finance that you can get. No, I love that. Uh, for anyone that's listening to this interview here on YouTube, um, we're going to be giving away three copies of No Worries. Uh, so just comment in the YouTube section and we'll we'll pick three people. We'll get those books out the door. Uh, Jared, want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm sure we'll have you on again. Uh, your first appearance here on the Looney Hour. But uh, once again, no worries. Uh, that comes out in, I think, what, two weeks? Uh, 12 days as of today. It comes out the 23rd of January. Okay. So anyone that uh, doesn't get picked for those three books, highly encourage you to get there on Amazon and grab a copy. Uh, I can attest to your to your writing. Your writing skill uh, is phenomenal. So it'll be an entertaining read nonetheless. And uh, once again, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, man. It was great. Really appreciate it. I thought that was a good interview with Jared there. Um, like I said, he's a he's a really good writer. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, he has awesome hair as well. I forgot yeah, to compliment yeah. him on that. I'm jealous. <laughs> he's a good follow on Twitter as well. Yeah, he is a good follow. Yeah, great, great sentiment guy. Honestly, people like he's he's a, he's a he's a quirky individual. Um, and so some people maybe have listening to him for the first time i'd be like oh i i don't know about this guy you know not using any data just you know feeling out the markets but i will say he's uh he's got a pretty good track record so so um, it, so the whole thing just for people to understand the whole thing with market sentiment means that if if everyone loves a market it means sentiment is very high very positive so by definition there's no one else left to buy so it can't go any higher. And then the same is also the opposite is also true. If everyone hates a market, then by definition, there's no one else left to sell. So that's why you want to follow sentiment quite quite closely. I'll give you the uh, a lot of I'll give you the sentiment indicators just on like housing. Like when I see, I remember like 20, you know, 2022, right? Because we're getting close to the to the top. Um you know, or the summer of 2021, everyone at like the barbecue is talking about real estate and how much money they've made and they're buying an investment property because they've made so much on their last house. You know, that's usually like a pretty good indicator of like a sentiment top when everyone's talking about, you know, the returns on real estate. And on the, on the flip side, you know, I remember in the winter of 2022, right. Which is still the low for Canadian housing uh, was when, I remember deals were blowing up. I'm like, oh man. I was like, oh, why did you, you know, why is your buyer not removing their subject conditions? Well, you know, the uncle called and he called from Atlantic Canada and he told the her he told, you know, the buyer that it's not a good time to buy real estate, that it's gonna keep dropping. And it's like, well, you know, in the you know, in the you know, the crazy uncles calling 
from across country to tell you it's not a good time to invest in real estate. It's it's usually a good sentiment indicator. So, you know, those are the kind of how I just, you know, really trying to tune into the market about what people are thinking and saying. Yeah. And you also have as well, uh, th there are a number of different actual data sentiment indices that have been created and they cover a whole bunch of different markets. Uh, you, you can find them. And so the thing with like sentiment for us, for example, you always use it as a consideration, but not the overriding one. Cause you know, something can remain awesome for a long time and something can remain crappy for a long time. But uh, Jared is, is absolutely correct. It's, it is something you always need to think about. And uh, so like as soon as like when, when Mama D is talking about a market <laughs> and she wants to buy it, you know, maybe and maybe that's not the time uh, no. to buy it. Can I just add one last thing there before we sort of pivot here is I think it just the biggest thing I want to remind people is just all about time horizons is that every investor, like, you know, whether it's the three of us or someone else, like we all have different time horizons. And so when we're talking about an investment or a trade, you know, it's all time horizons, right? Some people are like long-term investors, you know, hey, like you're buying the S&P and your dollar cost averaging. That's much different than someone that's saying, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm making a three-week bet on interest rates here. There are some hedge funds that are in and out of positions within the hour um as well so people need to know that um and so that's yeah you're totally I think that's right. where you get the biggest misconception right so yeah. i'll give you an, like i you know i'll go on twitter and talk about you know rates or something or whatever and they're like well you said you said this about rates and it's like well yeah i said that six months ago yeah it's like you know if the data starts to change i think you have to like you change you should be changing your views and opinions yeah um, so anyways, a, a cousin of sentiment is positioning, which we touched on briefly with Jared, which people should know is, um, there's a lot of positioning data. There's either surveys of positioning data, which is the thing bank of America, Merrill Lynch comes out one with every month. What is your biggest overweight? What's your biggest underweight? Are you invested in bonds or stocks? Um, and they calculate this, they have thousands and tens of thousands of clients. They amalgamate sort of all this survey data and they, they pump it out and they sell that, or, or you know, it's research. There's also sort of, um, there's um, there's futures markets, and you can see how many people are are long certain futures or short certain futures. There's open interest, which Jared talked about, which people may not know. It's how much how many people are shorting a particular stock um, as a percentage of the total market cap or the total available stock that's out there. There's different. There's just it goes on and on and on. We can't obviously discuss them all, but there's lots of different ways mm -hmm. you can understand either positioning, sentiment, etc. Yeah, we have, you know, we, you know, people who know us, you know, might have heard a lot of similarities in the, you know, in, in what Jared was just sharing with us. And like the big thing is you can't stay invested in fully invested in equities all the time because, you know, as, as you get older, you become more sensitive to losses. And plus, as you get older, dollar cost averaging doesn't help anymore because the amount you're putting into your portfolio is minuscule to the amount of exposure that you have. And then, I mean, everyone knows right now over the last 20, you know, 23, 24 years, we had three periods where, you know, market has had a 50% drawdown. So, uh, you know, managing, you know, I, I say all the time, you know, when the market is taking off, professional managers look like losers, you know, you, you get left behind. But when markets, you know, come down hard, you know, a professional manager should, you know, always do pretty well in, in that kind of environment. And it, it is about managing risk. They're not always seeking out return speaking of seeking out returns how can we maximize the rest of the podcast today how can we bring <laughs> well, it up yeah. steve what do you have for oh, us to talk about <laughs> seeking out Aww. returns uh we've got uh, some discussions here around um municipal governments in canada 
um, particularly as it pertains to property taxes. Um, so I think Keith, this is a larger secular trend. And I talked about this like a couple of years ago and people were like, Oh, this guy's like conspiracy theories, you know, like, but it's, it, the writing has been on the wall for some time that, you know, remember during the pandemic, our, uh, governor at the time our um municipal leader uh his name was kennedy stewart was writing articles in the vancouver sign and pleading for government bailout money because the city was on the verge of bankruptcy if they didn't get you know cash injections and so it's really just been a trend you know this year we've seen the city of vancouver has increased their property taxes i think it was seven and a half percent calgary was over seven percent um we just had the city of Toronto, which has been saying, hey, we've got all these difficulties. They just raised property taxes 10.5%. 10.5%. And that's your largest metro here in Canada. I mean, that's a huge whammy to people that are already suffocating under ballooning interest payments on their mortgage. Uh, the cost of home insurance continues to push higher. Uh, strata fees um, on, on condominiums continues to... You know, those are growing eight, nine, ten percent a year. So the cost of home ownership um continues to push higher. I think it's definitely gonna squeeze people on the fringes. Um, but I think this is also becoming an asset class that it is for the wealthy and the select few. Like it's just the days of 20, 30 years ago, or you know, you brought home an average income and you're able to save. I, I just think we're seeing this shift further and further away that um to jared's point on the on the interview let's be honest it is cheaper to rent housing in canada and in most parts of the world today well you certainly have less risk with with renting as opposed to home ownership i mean so the, i mean you know our, our view has always been that governments uh they're gonna spend every single tax dollar they bring in and then more as well so they're all they always want more tax revenue. That that's just the way we're, you know, we're put together. And, you know, with these property taxes going up now, some municipalities would say, no, we didn't raise taxes. It's still, you know, 0.6% or, or something, but the assessed value has gone up. You know, that, that's the way they look at it. And as you know, the more we're dishing out in for taxes or service fees, that's what some of them are called as well. It means, again, there's, there's less money we have left over at the end of the day, you know, to buy stuff. And buying stuff, that's what drives the economy, is not paying taxes. That, that That's not what does it. And we go back into this, you know, one thing we sort of touched on a little bit with, with Jared was, hey, is the Canadian market now, like the real estate market, is a sort of in a flushed out period and was trying to buy, or is it still oversold? You know, it's, it's not really in one direction or the other right now. However, if we continue to see soft data coming through, uh, you know, as you know, my view on, on this, I, I think the probability for Canada is, you know, so Rich, we have three scenarios come the Canadian economy. We either have, you know, flat to little growth coming up, a bit of a soft recession, or we get a hard recession. Right, that that's what the outcome is right now. The best scenario is that we get flat to a little bit of growth over the next year, and even that is going to be hard, you know, to achieve. What what are you thinking there, uh, Rich? Well, just this is why I, I always go on and on about productivity growth, and this is why productivity growth is so important because what you 
you know, if, and this is why GDP per capita is so important. You know, it's like if you tax people, but you aren't growing the pie, what you're doing is basically just absorbing more of a shrinking pie. Now, Canada's pie, forgive the, you know, forgive me going on in this, has basically been flat. You know, if it wasn't for the massive influx of people, our, our, you know, we would have already been in a technical recession long ago. And so that's why, you know, this emphasis on taxes and redistribution of wealth, it, it, you know, it can't, you know, you've heard me long enough. There are loads of great reasons to do that, in my view. Sorry, Keith. But ultimately, what really the emphasis and the focus should be on is growing that pie. And, 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 and that's and ultimately taxes will weigh on growth, will exacerbate some of the problems we have. And if we're not more efficient with either the money we spend or the capital allocation that we have, then it sort of eats itself. And there's the beggar thy neighbor policies ultimately sort of are the road to surf them. And and I just, you know, there's, there is, a, it, there, it's just, it, it's not a sustainable way sort of of running an economy, in my view. Um, and But we'll see. I mean, we'll see how long people will put up with it. Either will people will move, they'll either vote for different, they'll either move, move like physically, they'll vote with their They'll vote with their wallets or they'll vote, you know, in the next elections, or maybe they won't. Maybe they just love it. <laughs> well, I think that's where we're seeing some migration patterns. Obviously, people you're seeing more and more people moving to places like Calgary, uh, cost of living. But, you know, one of the ones I'd pointed out was um, so a Soyuz. So here in British Columbia, you know, nice, uh, nice little town, especially for vacationing. Um, a Soyuz residents are being hit with a 39% increase on their property tax bill for this year. 39%. Uh, they interviewed one homeowner that said her property tax bill was going to go up $2,500 for the year. So and that's where it just comes down to like, you know. But that's local... but, but that must be because the assessed value increased. Uh, no, there, there's protests going on in a Soyuz. And, um, because they Can you give like... us some context? Like what kind of town? Is it like a working town? Is it a commuter town? Is it you know, rich, uh, poor? A lot of retirees, you know, people that will leave the lower mainland that will go up there, retire, buy a home. You're, you know, you're close to all the local vineyards, the lake, you know, so it's, it's more of like a summer place, um, lots of tourism, but yeah, you get a lot of retirees and stuff. Um, so I, you know, the one thing I'd kind of bring up too, just like from the bigger picture perspective is like, you know, you talk about Toronto's property taxes going up 10 and a half percent. They've had the single largest property boom over the last 10, 20 years. I mean, the growth of that city, they've got the most cranes in North America. I mean, the amount of construction that is happening in that city, all of the rising real estate values that have boosted, you know, property values and and development fees and development charges and they've somehow seemingly squandered that money you know you can't imagine if toronto has a prolonged housing downturn over the next five to six years where is the money going to come from if development for example dries up for new housing Dun, 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 dun. It's time for the Bank of Canada to step in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a bit harsh to say that they've squandered it. I mean, Canada, I mean, Toronto is an outsized contributor to Canada's GDP. 
Um, you know, it's got a lot of the banks there. It's got good schools. I mean, it's a bit like strong. you, you couldn't, have, you could not is. have had a better economic environment. No, I, I agree. And the population growth is there. I mean, so some, just something squandering is a bit. Yeah. I but mean, the challenge with, I mean, we're talking about an asset a productivity from an asset, right? So let, yeah. let's just think about, I mean, the, the asset we're talking about is real estate and the banking sector. And they're both one of the other. I mean, it's the same thing, really. Yeah. And they're both levered entities. So most people see when, when they're buying a house, what, what's the leverage? Five times? Uh, Three? Yeah, yeah, it's about eight, yeah, nine. Five, five times. Five times. Yeah, five times. You know, most banks are levered anywhere from 10 to 20 times. And so when you get that leverage, you know, you should enjoy it when it's going up. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I know your comments, Steve, absolutely agree with it. Uh, we're say like the the end, you know, the oil patch, you know, that's also a, a very productive asset, and it is levered because you know, companies are levered, of course, but the leverage in that is significantly less than what you know you get from financial, sure. you know, balance sheet kind of leverage. And you know, a, again, the challenge we have with Canadians is that we've never seen a, a deep recession or a crisis developing from you know down on Bay Street, basically. And you know, you know, hopefully it, it doesn't happen. But if it if it does happen, you know, it's gonna be um it'll create one of those sentiment indicators we were talking <laughs> about earlier. Well that's <laughs> in the funny a bad thing. way. That's the funny thing. I was just looking at some of the data for Canada and the economic mood, um, according to Bloomberg, has actually started to to creep higher, which I thought was quite weird. Um so we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. But well, um, related related to that though, I mean, cuts, uh, baby. Everyone's all <laughs> yeah, maybe. <excited. laughs> cut, baby, cut. I mean, like I was just reading the article, you know, in the Bank of Canada that came out and they specifically said, this was Tiff. He said, there'll be no recession in 24, but the first half sure won't feel good. I mean, what does that mean, Rich? What does it even mean? It means they never forecast recession, right? right. You know, it's, hey, you never expect it. And, you know, you, you know, a good, a good household, you should always be planning. For things you know at okay. least with the conversations speaking of unexpected things um mr gilbo if you're if, if you're listening to this podcast um hertz hertz the rental car company uh announced today that they're planning to sell twenty thousand evs uh hertz plans to sell one third of its u.s electric vehicle fleet and reinvest those dollars into gasoline powered cars Due to weak demand and high repair costs for its battery-powered options, um, so of course this is on the uh, just after the environment minister Stephen Gilbo, of course in Canada, uh, is mandating zero emission vehicles by 2035. Um, so I don't know. Don't be surprised if Hertz is no longer operating in Canada in the very <laughs> near future. Um, but I thought that was interesting given all our conversations around electric vehicles over the past uh, couple episodes. I got another thing to add on the list that should should surprise absolutely nobody. Um, several months ago, maybe last year, maybe it was a year and a half ago, we talked about how uh, Canada's the land of oligopolies. I mean, this, I, we don't mean to hate on Canada all the time, but this some of the stuff just makes you like laugh at how stupid and obvious it is. And we discussed how Rogers was buying Shaw. Um, I think the three or four um, telecom companies controlled 99% of the um, mobile market share. 
And lo and behold, right on cue, right after our consumer um, protection minister came out and said, you know, we're going to watch out what the, these companies do. Rogers are starting to increase the prices of their um, some of their mobile services to new customers. This is um, just to provide some context. Canada already has the most expensive tele uh, telecommunications uh, services um, in the world. Um, you can look at the two following sources. One is Rewheel. That's a great source. And you can see, you know, monthly price for 4G and 5G smartphones is the highest out of something like 40 countries and 25% higher than the second and third place um, economy. So uh, it's just it, it things that were should surprise absolutely nobody. But yet um, people are know. going nuts on Twitter too. Like there's a lot of people like posting like screenshots of like their communications with Rogers and and um, you know stories about old ladies bills going up. Yeah. and yeah, it's it's a mess. But speaking of oligopoly, uh, we all oligopoly. We should call this oligopoly hour. Um, <laughs> HSBC, of course, every that, week. <laughs> yeah, that merger with uh, RBC, of course, buying HSBC. That's that's a confirmed done deal. I think that was approved a couple of weeks ago. Um, of course, you know, Krista Freeland uh, said that this will do nothing to diminish the competition in Canada. Uh, for anyone that's in the real estate or mortgage industry, you all know, including myself, that. HSBC has always been a historical leader in mortgage rates. They've always undercut any of the big five Canadian banks by 20, 30 basis points at least. So if that if they're gone, I mean, what is the incentive for the other five to actually be more competitive on their mortgage rates? So Canadians, um, we've 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 lost some competition there. You'll remember HSBC, this like almost like top tick the real estate market. But HSBC was the lender that during the pandemic, they were offering five-year fixed rate mortgages at 0.99%. Yeah, it's well, crazy. That was the free uh, money. sub 1% mortgages only offered by HSBC. But uh, again, oligopoly hour HSBC will be gobbled up here by RBC and uh, mm -hmm. that'll just pass through to, to mortgage rates uh, this year in 2024, which we still have over about 60% of the Canadians that have yet to see a mortgage payment increase despite all the uh, rate hikes from the BOC. So cut, baby, cut. Cut, baby, cut. I think the last thing that I want to bring up for everyone, this is something I'm, I'm tracking closely quite a bit. Uh, and it's a deal, Rich, it deals with the who. So not the Rolling Stones. What? Who? 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 What? Who? That's who. Uh, it's something that, that's really calling, interesting. What are, calling, what are we calling this one? Conspiracy Hour? Uh, no. Maybe. Please. This is I'm not. No, no, no. I know. I know. I'm just, I always but like bugging you. It, yeah, but it, it ties into the whole you know conversation. You know, we, we, we brought up Stephen Gibo's name there a few minutes ago. But uh, so the World Health Organization, they are probably the last 16 months now. They are developing... I don't know what the correct word is. Maybe it's an, it's an agreement that all countries, you know, they're saying, yeah, we will sign this. We will agree to it. But they're, they're trying to coordinate a common global response to any future pandemics. And, and that seems, you know, great if you think that way. Or, you know, maybe each country should have their own individual response because then, you know, hey, if you spread out the decision-making process, some people will get it right, some will get it wrong. It's supposed to one big 
correct decision or one big incorrect decision. Or only um, correct but, decisions, Keith. Or the only one. That's true. Yeah, that's true. But what's come out over the last week is that Canada, so, you know, that's, that's who's ruling in Ottawa these days, uh, they are requesting that the WHO, in the definition of a pandemic, will include something refer referencing climate. So the idea with that then is that the WHO will then be able to trigger a response says, hey, we now have a new pandemic. It is the climate crisis. Therefore, this is what everyone should now do. So whether that leads to you know, climate you know, travel lockdowns and, and stuff like that. But if this is something that, uh, you know, I, I read about it quite a bit because uh, it does have the probability of really reducing our ability to make decisions, you know, at, at the household level. And it's not something that's being shared with with Canada, with Canadians. And it, it's something that it's, it's a pretty significant decision that has been made by our government and yet no one has an opportunity to discuss it. So we're introducing that concept here. So Rich, well, this, sit down with Mrs. D and have a go at it. We've had, I think we've been pretty early on a lot of these pieces, but there's been a lot of discussion around like carbon credits, for example, right? Where it's like, okay, if you're an individual, Keith, and you're like, hey, you know, you've been flying a lot you've been traveling to toronto to do the loony hour you've been going to vancouver calgary and now you're going to go to be saskatchewan whatever it's like you as an individual will either have to buy those carbon credits or maybe you get tapped out right it's like sorry sir you've you know you've hit your limit for the month or for the year and uh you know you can't travel or again like you have to buy credits to to some extent if only there was a technology coming up where they could no. control how you spent your money. Uh, say <laughs> no to central bank digital currencies. Um, I'll just there was I'll an just, update on, on that, that. wasn't there, Rich? No, oh, there was. I mean, I'm not really sure I understand it fully, so I, I, I'm not going to comment. But if you if you have something to say, I just want to quickly just jump in on the on the climate thing. Number one, just remind that a pandemic is an epidemic of an infectious disease. Um, that's the definition. Um, and when everything is climate, then I think nothing is climate. And I think that there, what that does is it, 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 it de devalues what I think, you know, can be seen as some pretty reasonable things to be doing to, to lower emissions, e.g. nuclear power, um, and make our grids more efficient. Efficiency is always good. Efficiency is productivity. And I think what you do is you, you by just muddying that water, um, you don't allow for countries to react to the individual um, circumstances. Um, you know, the COVID was a perfect example. You know, it, it, you know, there are different countries that some are young. You know, African countries had extremely stellar re results because everybody's under 40. And older countries that are fatter and more north, you know, they behave differently. And by, by not being able to just do what you want to do from a country standpoint, I think is always a bad idea. But um what do we well, know i think that just to add to that point we do have like you know sometimes we get the odd commentary from one of these episodes and people are like oh you know you guys are you know not supportive of the, the climate and it's like nobody's saying that it's just the way that it's being taken about the way right. that governments and policymakers are sort of like stuffing this down people's throat and just sort of the the narrative around all of it and how it's being done is just i think wrong but um well, Doomberg talked about it last week. I mean, 
Germany shut down six nuclear power plants, and yet all they do is talk about climate, climate, climate. It's bullshit. If they really cared about improving, uh, sorry, lowering their CO2 emissions, they would have never have closed those, those machines. Those perfectly good, highly rated, by the way, Germany had the best rated nuclear power plants in the world. And they close them down. So it's, you know, it it, it it opens the door for a lot of criticism. And I think I'm happy to walk right through that door. <laughs> well, anyone else? Keith? Oh, I think that's all I'm allowed to say today. <laughs> yeah, you're tapped out, buddy. I'm tapped out. You're tapped out. out. No more carbon credits for you, Keith. <laughs> but again, like watch, like encourage people to try to, you know, pick up on this story. Um, because it, you know, that, that trend and momentum it, it continues and it keeps pecking away at you every single day. And then you know, before you know it, you know, that, that door has been closed. Um, well, I think that's uh, a good place to end it. I will, will say this, uh, there's an article out today or yesterday, uh, Ottawa federal government spent 11.3 billion in interest payments during oh, yeah. uh, 2023's third quarter record high 11.3 billion What's the what's the what's the word there, Keith? Uh, Interest yeah, rates I'm, are I'm at historic lows, Glenn. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so oh dear. oh dear, oh dear. I wonder though. I have you guys peeled back some of the numbers and the data behind municipal government debt? You know, like I said, I'm see you see these property taxes going up and up. And you're like, man, geez, you know, ten percent increase. You know, thirty percent increase. Municipal government debt. I wonder how much they're struggling under the uh, under the like weight. I know of- we've we sort of went down through this conversation before, and uh, I think we're just going to repeat it, and then a lot of listeners will correct us on it, um, which obviously means the three of us aren't learning anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it, it is my understanding that most municipalities you have to run a, a balanced kind of a budget. Correct. So I think any kind of lend borrowing they've done, maybe it's just more you know, year to year cash flow kind of financing. But it goes back to, you know, just say because of assessed value of properties have gone up by 10% and they have more cash flow coming in. Um, you know, that that money is is spent. And as Rich would point out, you would hope it is spent to increase productivity somehow, you know, in that city or town or municipality. But the big challenges on on the debt side it really it goes up to the federal government side and then with within each province because if they if we do get a recession then tax revenues for those guys are you know are really uh coming down and they're the ones who are exposed you know to debt rollovers and we're trying to do that in a, in a liquid market because that's what happened in Newfoundland back during the pandemic because they, they were the first ones that had to you know, roll over some debt you know that's when the Bank of Canada rolled in so it it is a good point Steve absolutely but I think it's more of a a weightier issue up to scale. I know we're getting close to wrapping this up. I just wanted to bring that last point up um, is the Bank of Canada. There's been a lot of discussion on Twitter. People are emailing us asking what's going on with the Bank of Canada's repo market. Um, It's basically the Bank of Canada intervening to provide liquidity. I think at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, it's $30 billion. Is there a story there? is there anything that is unusual? Do you want to go? Want me to go, Rich? Go for it. No. 
You're not worried about it. <laughs> well, you know, you always worry and look at these things, but it's just it's not this unusual event. You can see the data. You know, they always will use the repo market. The Bank of Canada will. They'll, you know, they'll. It's always available to firms when they need to use it. But I looked into this now a, a few days ago, and it, it doesn't seem to be screaming anything. It's it's just it's actually a lot less than it was over the last three years. It, it is trending lower significantly. Now you know we don't live in a world of absolutes. You know, zero, one hundred percent. But it, it it doesn't seem like it's someone out there struggling. And you know maybe that will change. You know, in a couple of weeks with better Something information, maybe to keep an eye on. It just sounds dramatic, of course, when you when you see it. it's five billion dollars, right? And it's just for one night, and then it's zero for a few days, and then it's five billion again. But what do you see with that, Rich? Yeah, same as you. I mean, I think other thing, other ways that you can sort of corroborate, corroborate the stress that may or may not be in the banking system is things like OIS spreads on the bonds that those banks um, have, so option adjusted spreads or credit spreads or credit default spreads, which are instruments that people can bet on worries in the bond market or you can see the stock prices so like you know you always have sort of um corroborating or or maybe a contrarian or a counterviewing um market action you know what i mean and so it, it, it'll never just be one instrument that goes to the moon and everything else stays stable it, you know you'll always sort of get either two or three or four different instruments sometimes wholly unconnected instruments but it all sort of share or reflect that same sort of market sentiment or market timing issue or we you know, we talked about sentiment before i think it's really important um, and so, and and there, you're not seeing any movement at all. In fact, actually, bonds, uh, sorry, not bonds, bank stocks have actually gone up uh, quite a bit as interest rates have sort of have come down a bit. So, um, so, meaning there's maybe there's less stress than we might have otherwise talked about. So, yeah, and for me, it's sort of a sort of a nothing burger. Am I allowed to say that for now? Anyway, <laughs> cut, baby, cut. <laughs> That's a good place to end it. Uh, as always, appreciate the support, Ludi Hour. We'll see you next week.